this, but we've all we've seen it all throughout the Old Testament that what ha- was meant for evil, what in the world's eyes was evil, God actually faithfully and mercifully turned for good. Whether that's the uh, the fatal choice of Adam and Eve to disobey God, and yet He had mercy on them, or the 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 very wicked actions of Pharaoh, and God. Uh, mercifully worked through Israel to raise up Israel out of slavery there, or even the, the Israel's own faithlessness in the wilderness as they complained, or how about the half-hearted obedience of Israel as they were in the time of judges, or even the rejection of God as king by his own people as we saw in 1 Samuel a couple of weeks ago. Surprisingly, God has not yet given up on his people. That even their evil actions, their disobedience, that God did not give up on them. And in fact, far from casting them aside and, and washing his hands of any involvement with them or their children or grandchildren, that God held faithful to this covenant promise that he gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God's like, God, God is essentially saying to them and to us, I'm not giving up on you, saying that to them. And to us, he's saying, you, you want to believe that I'm going to give up on you, but I'm not. And if you want a testimony of that, just read my, read my book, read the Old Testament. And so that's what we've been doing. And we've been seeing how we find our story in his story uh, as we read throughout the Old Testament. And this is a summary of what we've seen so far, that what was meant for evil, whether by Satan or the enemies of Israel or Israel themselves, God has turned for their good and for his glory. Even judgment, discipline, and correction, he has shown mercy. And because of that, we're left just saying, there's no one like our God. There is truly no one like our God, one who is worthy of praise and honor and, and humble adoration and respect and reverence as he is. And over the last few weeks, we've seen the kind of heart that God desires for us to have in the character of David, haven't we? In 1 Samuel, we saw a a David who cultivated God-centered relationships. We saw a a heart that zealously trusted in the Lord, even when he he was being pursued by his own father-in-law to take his life. He stayed faithful to God. He stayed faithful and he developed these these God-centered relationships and surrendered to these God-centered authorities. He He has a mind that's full of praise and a resolve that's rooted in God's calling and his purpose. And yet last week we saw David fall into sin. And while I would stand before you this morning and say that I want to be like David in every way except for that one, if I'm honest with you, I'm a lot more like David than I am unlike David in that respect. We, we, we identify with David's weaknesses, don't we? We identify with David, David's struggles. And that's the whole purpose of this story, is for us to identify with these characters and to understand God's covenant faithfulness to them. And so we saw David fall into sin, and we saw the devastating impact that it had on his family, the damage that was done in his family. And we saw another element of the kind of heart that God wants, to have, wants us to have, and that is one that repents. And comes before God with honest confession. And this perspective on the inner life of David and others that poured their hearts out to God in the Bible is unique to Christianity. God wants us to see what it looks like to come honestly before him in different seasons of our life. And that is why we have this book known as the Psalms. The the book of Psalms is perhaps one of the most quoted books of the Old Testament. 
It's, it's one of the most adored books of the Old Testament. Uh, across denominational lines, the book of Psalms provides a foundation for the worship of God's people. And what you're going to see this morning is a beautiful picture that God has painted for Israel and for us about how prayer is connected with hope. How prayer is connected with hope. If I could tell you uh, the purpose of the book of Psalms is this, what you're going to see today is that it is teaching us how to pray and how to, how to fix our eyes on hope as we pray. This world is broken, and things don't work out the way that we think they should many times. And yet God is faithful. And this is the tension that we find in the book of Psalms, that the world is broken, and yet God is faithful. And so I, I want you to look at this intentional design first, first of all. When we think of the Psalms, we rightly think of a collection of, of Hebrew poems by David, right? But it wasn't just David. Here, actually, you see David was just uh, one of several authors. David uh, wrote 73 Psalms. Asaph wrote 12 Psalms. Uh, the sons of Korah, who we don't know very much about them, except that they wrote 11 Psalms. Uh, Heman and Ethan were worship leaders in Israel. They wrote two Psalms. You even have Solomon and Moses writing three psalms, uh, anonymous, uh, we, we have uh, 49 anonymous psalms, and we think some of those psalms even were written by Ezra and Nehemiah, and we'll hear their stories in a few weeks. And so the book of Psalms, was, these, were, these were different Hebrew, Hebrew poems written throughout the time of Israel's history. And they were all separate. David, like, probably a lot like you, David had his little journal right? Or scroll or whatever it looked like, you know, in those times. And, and he would write. And then he just had a stockpile of, of psalms in his head and he would speak these out or other people would write them down. And then one of the things we're going to see in Israel's history coming up in a, a few weeks is how Israel disobeyed God. And just as God promised, they would be kicked out of the land. They'd be exiled. And it was during that time of exile that somebody gathered all of these psalms, all 150 of these psalms, they gathered them all together and they arranged them into the book of psalms that we have in our Old Testament today. Now, a lot of us don't realize that when we think about the book of psalms, that they were separate and then somebody put them together. And what you're going to see is, is that whatever Hebrew uh, a poet or prophet or Levite priest did this, they had a very intentional design, and they want, to, they want you and they want me they, to see something very specific about these psalms. And it all begins in Psalm chapter 1 and Psalm chapter 2. And, and you say, well, how do you know this, Ryan? I'm going to give you a few reasons that we do know this. First of all, look at the, you could look at the very uh, last five psalms. Uh, psalm 146 through Psalm 50, four or five psalms there. They all end in the exact same way. Hallelujah, which means praise God, right? That's what that means, praise Yahweh. And that's where we get our word hallelujah, right? And so when you look at that and you see hallelujah and all these psalms praising God and you say, okay, well, somebody put all of those at the end and had a very specific way that they ended. And then you go to the beginning and you said they, all, they also had a very specific way that they began. Then it tells you something about the intention of the book and the design of the book. And so let's dive into Psalm chapter 1. And we'll see the first purpose of the book of Psalms. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm chapter 1. Very familiar verses. Very wonderful verses to commit to memory if you've never done that. 
But this sets out the entire purpose. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, if you, if you don't mind uh, writing in your Bible, underline the two occurrences of the word law in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, that word law is literally the word Torah, T-O-R-A-H. That's a Hebrew word which literally means instruction. It would be defined as instruction or teaching. But it was also used to identify the first five books of the Old Testament. We call the books of Moses or the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those were the five books of Moses, right? And they were also called the Torah. And what they were for Israel is they were to instruct Israel about the nature and the character of God so that they could stay faithful to that covenant that God had made with Israel, I mean, with Abraham there in Genesis 12, and then again with Israel in Exodus 20, and then again with Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. So all of the prophets that we're going to look at in the coming weeks, what they're doing is they're looking at the current state of Israel in their day, and they're saying, you either are being faithful to the covenant or you're not being faithful to the covenant. And when they say covenant, they mean the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. But remember, these books were put together not during a time where Israel was unified in the, in the land of promise, but when they were in exile. And so there's something specific about this idea of meditating upon the instruction of God that we don't need to forget about. Okay, so we're going to store that in slot one of our memory, memory recall for a moment, and then we're going to move on to purpose two. Okay, so the, pur- the first purpose is to call us to meditate on the instruction of God. Secondly, though, Psalm chapter two. The, this uh, Psalm chapter two is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David. And we don't know if David wrote it, but it was somebody who was meditating upon the promise that God gave to David in 2 Samuel chapter seven. They're meditating upon this promise, and they're recognizing, this is why we don't think it was David, they're recognizing that the promise that God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7 pointed far beyond David, pointed even beyond Solomon, to the future king who would reign over Israel and the nations one day called the Messiah. And Psalm chapter 2 calls the people to rejoice that one day God will establish the Messiah as king to rule over the nations and to defeat evil. That's the entirety of Psalm chapter 2. That the Messiah is one day going to be set up as king to rule over the nations and to defeat evil. And then the connection between Psalms one, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 is found in verse 12 of, of, chapter, of Psalm chapter 2. The very last sentence begins with the word blessed. Or if you're Baptist, we say blessed, right? Blessed. That idea of blessing connects us, connects Psalm chapter 2 with Psalm chapter 1 and connects us all the way back to Israel, connects us all the way back to Abraham, connects us all the way back to Adam and Eve. Remember we said that word blessing is the key to understanding what God's up to in the entirety of the Old Testament. 
He blessed Adam and Eve being made in his image, being able to know him, being able to, to reflect his glory and his nature in a very interesting and, and unique kind of way. But they chose their own path and they chose to define life according to their own terms, not according to God's terms. And so that blessing was removed from them. And in fact, what we find is that we're our own worst enemy at some points in time. We, and that's because of the decision that Adam and Eve made to define life according to their own terms rather than God's terms. And God could have left us there, but he didn't. In Genesis chapter 12, he established his covenant with Abraham and he said, through you, all the nations of the earth will be what? Blessed. That's right. Yep. Y'all, I got y'all. Y'all track on me. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So, so Adam and Eve lost the blessing, but the blessing will be restored through Abraham's family. And then Exodus chapter 20, God gives them the law so that they can become a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They mediate between God and other people. They would be a kingdom of priests so that the nations could experience the blessing of God's rule over their lives. But we know how did Israel do in, in following that law and being shaped by that law? And they did pretty poorly, right? And now... It, when this is being written, the fruits of David and Saul's rebellion have borne out, and now they're not even in the promised land anymore. They've been conquered. And so as this book is being written, as Psalm 2 is being penned, there is this thing in the mind of the people saying, guys, we lost it. We lost that blessing. We got kicked out of the promised land. We lost it. And yet, God still hasn't given up on us yet. What Satan intended for evil, what we intended for evil, God is going to turn for our good and for his glory. And so the book of Psalms is essentially saying this. That if you want to be a part of the blessing that's going to come when the Messiah will come one day, then you seek to meditate. This is what Psalm 1 and 2 says. You seek to meditate on this instruction so that you can not only know the nature and character of God that you see in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but so that you can see the nature and character of prayer, which is communion with God, so that you can be shaped and made into that person who's going to be a blessing to those around you. I'll prove this to you. How many books did we say are in the Torah, the Pentateuch? Five, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Guess how many books are identified within the book of Psalms? Five. And what are we told that it's, it's a blessing to meditate on in Psalm chapter 1? The Torah or the instruction? So the, the, the compiler of the Psalms is not saying, okay, forget about those first five books. Those obviously didn't do us any good. Right? And so, we, we are so our culture is so prone to do today. But what he's saying is, you see God in a way in those books that cannot be replaced. But I'm going to tell you, God didn't just intend for you to see him at a distance. Because this is the way that John Calvin defined faith. He said, he said faith is a warm embrace. It's not God's design for you to know him at a distance. It's God's design for you to know him in the intimacy of his presence. And guess what the book of Psalms is designed to, guess where the book of Psalms is designed to usher you into? The very presence of God. Because as we saw in Saul, God doesn't care about what you look on the outside, what you look like on the outside. 
God wants you to be prepared in your heart. Well, where does prayer take place? Jesus said it's not about flattering words that come out of your mouth. It's not about eloquence. What's it about? It's about a heart that longs for him. And so guess who the book of Psalms is written for? People who are longing for the intimacy of God's presence in the mountaintops of life and in the valleys of life as well. That's why we need to meditate on the five books of Moses. And that's why we need to use these five prayer books of Israel as a way to enter into the presence of God with thanksgiving so that we can give him praise. And we've seen that already, right? We've seen even this morning how God has designed for, for that to happen in us because what did we sing? Philip quoted the, the Psalms to you that these two songs were written by, uh, written, written uh, according to the, the May the Peoples Praise You and I, uh, I forget what it's called, For Thou, O Lord, Be Exalted, O God, right? Or I Exalt Thee, right? The, those two songs were written from the Psalms. And so here we have the prayer book of Israel still leading us in worship to this day. Now, if you sat down to read the psalm, one more thing I want to point out. If you sat down to read, to read the psalms from start to finish, that you would see that earlier in the psalms, the psalms of, of lament, which are, it's kind of hard to read, but lament, this, this idea of how long, O Lord, this world's broken, I don't like where I am. I don't like what I'm seeing around me. That's a lament, right? So these, these psalms or prayers of, pray, of, of uh, pain, of confession, of even anger, right? They draw attention to what's wrong in the world. They ask God to do something. When are you going to act, God? What you notice is in the first three books, and if you want to know the, the, the division breakdown, look at the graphic in your uh, in your. Uh, uh, that was in your, your insert in your bulletin. And also, I don't know about your translation, but my, my translation has the, the book divisions in the Psalms so you can know where these divisions start and finish. But nevertheless, if you want to know specifically about, uh, if you want to see, if you read the Psalms, like if you just started reading in Psalm chapter one, you would notice that in the beginning part of the book of Psalms, these Psalms, these Psalms of lament are they predominate the psalms of praise, which we know what psalms of praise are. Those are prayers of joy and celebration. They draw attention to what's good in the world. They, they retell the story and thank God, right? And so in the first half of the book of Psalms, give or take a few, a few psalms, in the first half, all these psalms of, of lament are more prominent. But guess, what's ha guess what happens as the book goes on? And you get into the later half of the book. The psalms of praise begin to outnumber the psalms of, of lament. So what is all this saying? What does this mean, Ryan? I know, I, I was going to tell you. Well, if the psalms are the prayer book of God's people, and the whole point of the book of psalms is to teach us how to pray with what? Hope? Then this is where the rubber meets the road for us. For Israel, the... Psalms, they were about striving to live faithful to the instruction of God's word while looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And that's why the lament turned to praise. It's because they recognized that one day God was going to send a king who would not only conquer evil, 
but would fix what is right in the world. So they, so they essentially did what we've, we've been talking about here for a long time. They took their eyes off of their situation and stopped dwelling on this earthly situation. And they fixed their eyes on the promises of God that were their fuel to enter tomorrow. And what did that do? What fruit did that produce in their life and in their hearts? Hope. Hope. Because tomorrow is not determined by your strength and your power, is it? You can't do it. You can't make tomorrow happen. All you can do is go to sleep and hope that it comes, right? One of the greatest evidences that you're weak and you are meant to depend on somebody who's stronger than you is that you have to have between six and eight hours of unconsciousness every day so that you can function tomorrow, right? I mean, honestly, God is a, God's testifying about the nature of our humanity even as we sleep because he's saying you can't make tomorrow happen but I can guarantee you that I will make the sun go down today and come up tomorrow and there will be another day and you'll live it and yet we think we're the center of the world, right? We're not. We're not. And the fact is is that God wants us to connect with the fact that he is the bringer of hope. And if you pray and you just try to look at your sickness or you just try to look at your disability or you just try to look at your, at your situation in your prayer, you're going to pray a lot of prayers of, of lament. And that's not wrong. That's why they're included in here. But there's got to be a turning of your perspective on the hope that God's promises alone can bring. And as you turn your eyes on that hope, then that's when the, the lament turns into praise. I've been walking with God for decade, two decades now. I've never seen that. That's why we're doing this series the way that we're doing it. There was a design. And we've met, I, I've, I've, just, I've missed it. I don't know about you, but I've never seen that before. Now, what does it do? It, it actually affirms what I've known about God as I've walked with him. And so I know it's true. But this is God's design for you and for me as we come into his presence through the Psalms today. But there's one difference. There's one difference, y'all. Israel was doing what? Looking forward to a Messiah who would one day come. But what are we doing? We're looking back at the Messiah who has come and now living in that already not yet period of victory where Jesus has conquered and yet he is conquering through his church who goes into every sphere of humanity and says, this is the Lord's. This is the Lord. This is Jesus who died and rose again. This is his creation. And as I stand here, I claim this for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what we are doing as we walk throughout this life. We're not looking forward to a coming king necessarily. We're looking back to a coming king saying that he has come once, but he is also coming again. And this time when he comes, he will not come as a savior, but he will come as a deliverer and a judge. 
And this is the tension that we live in. And so the Psalms are not a distant, abstract prayer book for Israel that has no bearing on our lives today. The Psalms are the, the, the verbiage of our praise as well as we long for the return of Christ. You see, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the ultimate proof that he is the Messiah that the Psalms look forward to. And so, just as we think about what this means for us, as we come to a, a time of invitation and just considering what, what you know, how, how, do we, how do we make the transition from here to here? In talking about the Psalms, we've also talked about the kind of response that the Lordship of the resurrected Christ is meant to generate within us. Because if it's truly good news, you don't reject good news, you embrace good news, right? You walk in that good news. You live in that good news. You don't trade that good news for bad news, right? You don't trade that which is supreme, the news about Jesus coming and living and, and dying and being risen from the grave. You don't, you don't trade that news for news about more money, and more possessions, or more people liking you, or anything. You don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't trade that for anything. And so my question for you today, if you're here, and we're making this transition from thinking about God's calling upon our lives to be worshipers, to, to be intimately communing with Him through the Psalms, now we, we turn our eyes upon exactly what prayer looks like as we see, God has called us to himself and we enter with thanksgiving, recognizing that the only way that we have any claim to this covenant faithfulness of God is because God was looking forward to the cross of Christ. God was looking forward to the day in, the, in these days. God was, God was pouring out patience. God was pouring out mercy. God was pouring out grace because he was looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come and his body would be broken and his blood would be shed so that a people could be called by his name. Those people who would put their faith in him, a people could be called by his name and be set on mission for his glory. And guess what? They can't do it on their own. So what they need is a community of people who are woven together by, a saint, by, by one common story. And this is our story that Jesus has died for us. And he has made people who can find every reason to be divided. He has made us one. Because we have all eaten of his flesh. We've all drank his blood. We've all tasted and seen that he is good. We've all recognized that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus is that one and only Savior. Now, if that's not your story today, then I want to encourage you that today is a day for you to confess the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, to repent of your sin and to trust that Jesus is your treasure. That this, this story, that your story, when you think about your story, is a story of brokenness and pain and there's no hope in it. But Jesus is brings hope into any broken story. That's, that's all of our testimonies in here today. And so if you're not a believer today, then that's the, that's the way you need to respond. But if you're, in a, if you're a believer today and you want to come into his presence and come to this table, then you need to be honest about the ways that you've tried to write parts of your own story that aren't necessarily God's.
You've, try, you've tried to, to, to write into your story something that God would never have for you, and that's called sin. We all have those areas in our life, and what we want to make sure that we do is we, as we come to the table this morning, we want to make sure that we have no unconfessed sin in our lives. That we haven't tried to live one way in this place, and then when we leave this place, we have another set of values, we have another, another mission, we've really, if we're honest with ourselves, we have another savior, it could be another person, it could be a, a job, it could be money, it could be something else. If you're living for another Lord outside this place, then don't take this, this, this Lord's Supper, don't take this communion. Because Paul said that in his day, people did it just that way, and they ate and drank judgment on themselves. And so for us today, we enter a time of self-examination as we, as we come to this point of decision. And if you've never trusted Christ, then that's the way you need to respond today. You need to believe upon the Lord Jesus and be saved and become a worshiper of God. But if God has already set you apart by faith, then today, would you ask yourself the question, am I living according to the calling that he's placed on my life? Am I following him? Am I, am I worshiping him? Am I communing with him? Am I living for his glory? Those are the kind of questions that, that define true Christianity because it puts Jesus at the center. And so we're going to take a moment and we're going to have a time of repentance, a time of confession, a time of invitation. If you need to make a public decision, I'll be right down here in front and, uh, at the table in front of the table. You can come, I'll pray with you, or you can come and, uh, and I'll share with you how Jesus, what Jesus has done for, for us. But if you're a, a believer in this room this morning, then I want to encourage you when we, after I pray, just bow your head and close your eyes and just talk to your father. And if you, if you, if you wonder where to start, then begin with gratitude over what the Messiah has already done and accomplished for you. Think about the words, it is finished, that Jesus said on the cross, and think about how that applies to your life. Start there with gratitude. And if there's anything blocking you, if there's anything, any, kind of, any kind of fear or sin or doubt that would keep you from coming honestly before him, then immediately confess that. Immediately confess that and believe his, his promises of covenant faithfulness that have been given to you in Jesus. And let that be the attitude of your of your heart during this time of invitation. So let's pray together and we'll begin our time.